0: Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, President of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today I want to welcome Justin Taylor to the podcast. Justin is the Executive Vice President of Book Publishing and Book Publisher at Crossway. He has edited and contributed to several books, including co-editing Overcoming Sin and Temptation by John Owen. Justin, welcome to Preaching and Preachers.
1: It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, look, it's always good to talk with preachers and authors and, and academics on this podcast about different books related to preaching and to preachers and to local church ministry. And uh, many times those conversations are with not only an accomplished individual, but also a friend. And uh, Justin, I consider you a friend and grateful for the friendship the Lord has given us here in recent years. And uh, man, I just want to know what you mean to me, Midwestern Seminary. You have many other, obviously, relationships here and thankful for your your ministry and friendship to us.
1: Well, thank you. I'm a big fan of Midwestern and uh, of you personally, so it it really is a joy to be able to chat with you today, so thank you.
0: Yeah, hey, before we get into kind of the meat of the conversation, which today we'll be talking about the pastor and temptation, before we get into the meat of that, perhaps a word of update on what's new with you uh, and the Justin Taylor family, perhaps a word of update on Crossway, and uh, just maybe you can encourage us for a moment or two.
1: Yeah, things are are well by God's grace. I've been at Crossway now uh, 12 years and was up at Desiring God Ministries before that in Minneapolis. Uh, So God has been very kind to Crossway um, in the past several years, and I had the opportunity to uh, succeed my uh, mentor, Alan Fisher, here and uh, oversee the the book publishing program. And uh, it's it's a true joy. It's an honor to be working with books to be working with authors to be working with bibles so crossway is a wonderful place to work and uh, i wouldn't be at any other place um and our family is well my wife and i have five children going from uh, soon to be ninth grader in high school down to uh, a two-year-old and a one-year-old so uh, keeps us busy and happy and uh Prayerful.
0: Yeah, well, no, I I resemble that that assessment. I uh, mean, that that's <laughs> our lives as well in similar fashion. Um, and so man, that's encouraging to hear. When did you complete your PhD? Now was that what three, four years ago? When?
1: You know, I lose track of time, but I think that it was three years ago now from Southern Seminary.
0: That's right. And You did that in the era of biblical spirituality, right?
1: I did. Yeah, church history minor and uh, biblical spirituality was the major under. Uh, Dr. Michael Hagen's direction.
0: And what did you write on?
1: I wrote on John Piper. Uh, the title of the dissertation is John Piper, The Making of a Christian Hedonist, and looked at the four primary influences in his life, ranging from his parents, who were um, the greatest influence in most of our lives, who were uh, fundamentalists and went to Bob Jones University, uh, to Daniel Fuller, uh, the son of the founder of Fuller Theological Seminary, to C.S. Lewis, and to uh, John Nathan Edwards. So I kind of made the argument that if you take any one of those four out of the mix, you really end up with a different John Piper.
0: Mm. That's good. Well, listen, let's... So it's fun to work on. Yeah, it's, it sounds like it. And obviously your close relationship with him over the years enabled that project. So I have sure. not read that, but uh, it would be fascinating to look over. Let me let me move us to kind of the meat of the conversation today. The topic is the the pastor and temptation, and this podcast with you on this topic is one that I've looked forward to now for several weeks. Um, not because it's particularly fun or particularly uh, enjoyable in in any in any surface sense, but uh, because it's so needed, it's so consequential. We are constantly reminded about leaders, pastors, major authors, major Christian figures who are falling in ministry, whether it's due to sexual impropriety, uh, financial mismanagement, or even misappropriation of funds, um, some sort of temper flare-up, uh, some sort of materialism run amok, uh, all sorts of different issues uh, that can derail one's ministry. And we, we tend to think of the immediate effects of that, the immediate victims of that, the family, uh, the church, or the, 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 the Christian community that's disrupted. But also there there's greater harm done as far as just the broader glory of God and the reputation of God in the community, or more broadly in the um, in the evangelical or Southern Baptist world in my context. And so today it's important because we we often think of, again, when we hear of the the major church pastor or the major author who has to step down, uh, that that sobers us because of the headlines it generates. But the landscape is dotted with little churches, um, some of which have known some little scandal, some pastor who wrote a check he couldn't cash, or who ran off the secretary, or did something else very foolishly that wrecked a ministry. And so, this conversation today needs to be had about the pastor and temptation, because so often, uh, you know, the big falls were preceded by a bunch of little missteps, a little compromises, small acts. Uh, that were not caught or were not corrected, and, uh, and then along came the calamitous fall. So, you know, the pastor and temptation is the topic, and, uh, and, and you're a natural to talk of this because of—well, for a number of reasons, but most especially because of, of your work on John Owen and the book you co-edited on overcoming sin and temptation— so I guess maybe just you know, kind of entering into this conversation, maybe a word or two about the book project as a whole and uh, what drew you to Owen. And and obviously Owen was known for engaging that topic. He did engage that topic. But, but what drew you to Owen and the topic?
1: You know, I think before I had ever read anything by John Owen himself, I had heard about him from people I greatly respect. And they were not just the sort of... Uh, garden variety endorsements, but they were, um, it could almost sound like hyperbole, but the the people actually meant it. Um, J.I. Packer said that he owes more to John Owen than to any other theologian. And so whatever the name is in that sentence, if it's J.I. Packer saying, I sit up and take notice, uh, then Jerry Bridges said that Owen's work on indwelling sin, mortification of sin he said, are, are the most helpful writings on personal holiness he's ever seen in his life. And so that that just made me want to read uh, this person who is an influencer of people who have influenced me. Uh, but when I picked up, I bought uh, several years ago now, Owen's complete works. They're written in or edited and typeset in an 18th century, 19th century Typesetting, and they were just they're complicated works. Uh, Owen lived in the 1600s, and as a Christian, I want to um, battle for holiness and put sin to death, and wanted to read these works, and also wanted to try to make them more accessible, more accessible to myself first of all, and then more accessible to other people. So, the short version of a longer story of how this came about ended up partnering with Kelly Capig. A guy who teaches theology at Covenant College and did his dissertation in England on Owen, and we had an emerging friendship, and so we partnered together to try to put together modern editions of the books that were unabridged, kept everything that Owen wrote, but uh, instead of changing the wording, we we try to footnote the wording, provide a glossary, provide an outline, provide summaries. all those sort of things, just to make it more accessible to today's reader. So I did it first for myself, and then I thought, well, if this is helping me, perhaps it can help other people as well.
0: So thinking about the the, the topic at hand, the pastor and temptation, mm-hmm. and putting that in context with these falls in ministry that, that we keep seeing, I know how it looks kind of from Kansas City, you know, from, from my corner of the kingdom— um, how does it look from your corner of the kingdom there in in Wheaton and the circles you traffic in? Uh, maybe a word or two, just how 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 you're interpreting this. What does it say about the church? Uh, are these happening more frequently than they than they than they once happened, or are we just hearing about them more because of social media and and, and the internet and so forth? So I'd love to hear maybe a, just a basic assessment from your end as to what we should make of of these circumstances.
1: Well, I think the question that you just asked, or the question that I've been asking, and that friends and I have been kind of um, talking about back and forth over these past several years, is this sort of a, an upsurge in uh, frequency uh, of these sort of things, or has this been happening from the dawn of time, and we're just hearing about it more and more? And I, I suspect the answer is yes to, to both of those. Perhaps there is an increase. We're certainly hearing about it more and more now. So uh, 50 years ago, if uh, some pastor in Ames, Iowa, ran off with his secretary, probably only his congregation would hear about it or his family members, and unless it made the local papers. But it wouldn't be national news unless he was famous. But I think now with the leveling of social media, anything is fair game, and um, it can be used very quickly to tarnish the name of Christ. Um, first of all, for the acts that are done, and then this kind of extrapolation out that, of course, all men who are pastors, of course, all people who um, preach and have conservative values are are in this line, and everyone's hypocritical. So ultimately, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I do think it's important to remember that um, the man who's been faithful to his wife and to his church for fifty years tends not to make headlines and we, we don't tend to hear about that and yet we do hear about uh the failures and when guys make shipwreck of their ministries and even of their faith. So it's very sad. I think every single occurrence that pops up on our newsfeed or computers or in our lives is is tragic and it should sober us all. There's a natural temptation, I think, to, especially if it's somebody whom you disagree with, um, <coughs> to, uh, to, to gloat even in a in a minor sense. But I think the effect that it should have for every single one of us is to uh, look at ourselves, to become more prayerful, to become more watchful, to become more on guard, to become more transparent. But yeah, it's it's sad and it's discouraging um, every single time it happens, any time that it happens.
0: Hey, Justin, let's pause just for a moment for a word of update from Midwestern Seminary. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment, passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry content. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America, as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu mdiv today. All right, I'm back with Justin Taylor here on Preaching and Preachers. We're talking about the pastor and temptation. So, drawing a line from that to your book on Owen, on overcoming sin and temptation, what are some of the primary lessons about temptation you learn from engaging Owen and perhaps may be applicable to pastors listening to this podcast?
1: I think two things stand out to me in, in spending all this time kind of pouring through every word that Owen wrote. and these, There are basically three books within this one book. One of them was on mortification, one was on temptation, and then one was on indwelling sin. And I think that one thing that stood out to me is that uh, Owen had such a, a heightened sense of awareness about sin and its temptation and such a great seriousness of putting sin to death. Um, you know, if we tend to think about the, the average person these days, maybe we could compare it more to um, sleepwalking, going through life, get up, go through your routine, you try to do your duties, try to do the best that you could. Owen, oh, I picture him as more um, eyes wide open, looking for the enemy attacks that are coming. He really did view himself as being in warfare and I think that was a, a huge lesson for me in working through this book, that he took it so seriously because he saw the dangers that it could be for his own life, for his own marriage, for his own church, for the nature of the kingdom itself. Um, I think another aspect that was really crucial is the way in which Owen connects temptation and sin to the gospel. Um, Sin is one of those topics, temptation is one of those topics that it can be easy to become moralistic and legalistic if you study it and you lose sight of the cross. But Owen always has the cross in view um, to relieve a guilty conscience, um, to, to look at the cross, to rely upon the work of Christ that's been done for you. So if I had to kind of summarize the lessons from Owen and three or four points, I'd say I almost put study in front of all of them. We need to study the enemy. He's he's not taking any rest breaks. He's always going after us. He's always looking for ways to, to trip us up, to exploit our weaknesses. So just like a, a football coach, a good football coach knows the opposition and their tendencies and their strategies and what they've done before and what what they might do in the future, Owen was huge on – trying to to know the enemy's game plan. Um, but that wasn't all he did. He also wanted to know himself, to know his own personality, to know his own past, to know his weaknesses, where he's susceptible to temptation. And he wanted us to study God, who God is, to meditate upon his holiness and his character and his commands. And then finally to study and, and to really think through God's provision, what He did for us in Christ and giving us the gift of the Spirit to battle against temptation. So putting all of those together, I think all of those were great application points for me in, in working through Owen on temptation and sin.
0: So in your opinion, what are some of the, the recurring temptations that pastors face today, or the particularly besetting ones, the ones that can be particularly mm-hmm. uh, arresting for pastors?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to remember that there are unique temptations that apply to pastors that don't apply to everyone else. So, we, you know, we have to keep that in mind. That there's uh, the question of of what are the the temptations that apply to every man is it's a distinct question from what applies to pastors, and yet we're all of the same human nature. So there's some sins that are applied to all of us, applied to all of us as men. And some things that uh, by the nature of being a spiritual authority, by the nature of preaching, by being the one that's looked to for answers and for counsel, there's a, a unique temptations that come that way as well. Um, I think because of all the things that have been in the media, things that garner national headlines, it's very easy for us to to talk about lust. And um, you know if, if people are still doing podcasts three hundred years from now, that's going to be a primary. Temptation for any man, for any uh, leader, but sometimes we can make that almost the the dominant thing that becomes all we think about when we think about men and temptation in particular. I was struck a few years ago by reading Francis Schaeffer's uh, little essay on doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Um, he had a quote here that I I clipped because it was arresting to me when I read it. He said he thinks that. The central problem of our age is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh mm. rather than of the Spirit. They said the central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. So I think of what is a unique temptation for pastors? I think especially pastors who are gifted at speaking, who are gifted at leading who have strong personalities, um, gifts of charisma and oratory. It's, I think a central temptation, I, I guess I'm agreeing here with Schaefer, is doing things in the flesh and not in the spirit. Um, and the thing is, you can grow a church that way. You can grow a seminary that way. You can sell books that way, write books, publish books, get a lot of notoriety, get a lot of praise, but not to do it in the power of, of the spirit. Uh, so I think those are are central. Um, just looking this morning at John Piper's book *Battling Unbelief*, which is a, a great little book where he takes the application chapters from his book *Future Grace* and just lists out various states of unbelief we can be in. And um, again, I think lust can dominate what we when we think about temptation. But you know, he he works through things like anxiety and pride and impatience and covetousness and bitterness and despondency, and I think all of those things are, are things that, um, again, they they apply to all of us, but perhaps uniquely for pastors, um, those temptations towards despondency, um, sins of the tongue, um, gossip, all of those things I think are, are temptations that pastors face today
0: right and then you have the whole as you're suggesting the whole category of you know, respectable sins or, or, or ones that aren't as as scandalous or or the ones that aren't as obviously disqualifying if committed now, now let me let me tease out an observation with you here along these lines and uh, man I would love love your feedback uh, when you think of our ministry moment uh, the, the second decade of the 21st century and where we are with social media with the internet with publishing opportunities we have and obviously you're there uh, the epicenter of it, um, and our, the, the premium we place on content, okay? The premium we place on content, and again, I, I, I'm in the middle of this. I lead a seminary, you're at a publishing house, I write, you write, I seek to recruit and retain faculty who write, so you know, one could say you may be about to you know, be the pot calling the kettle black here, but um, I, I, just as an observation of this moment in ministry, this moment of the evangelical world, my question is this. Are we in danger of placing such an emphasis on the writer, on the speaker, or what? 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 You know, Peter Drucker would refer to as the knowledge worker, um, the person who is gifted to communicate, uh, and so kind of unwittingly creating a pecking order where, you know, the one with the highest IQ is at the top of the uh, Christian org chart. And I don't mean that merely in academic circles, but everything from conferences to churches to the people that we look up to, the people that wield influence in the evangelical world. And overlook other aspects or other strengths that historically have been as important or perhaps even more important, strengths like personal piety, strengths like not that you can quantify this, but uh, but how given one is to prayer, uh, how 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 given one is to faith, you know the George Muellers of the world of church history. And at times I, I I do fear that if we're not careful, we can we can think the you know the greatest Christians are those with the highest IQs. Now I'm not looking to put you know dummies on a pedestal. But I'm wondering if there perhaps should be some corrective there, some further expanding of, of how we evaluate Christian leadership as a whole.
1: I think it's a very astute and important observation, and you're right that the the channels that we swim in, um, I think, lend themselves to maybe even call it fetishizing uh, knowledge and. Scripture, I can't think of any place that it says that, you know, the person who knows the so much is is the greatest among you. Um, the central commands that Jesus gives us are to love, to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it has nothing really to do with IQ. And as you essentially acknowledged in your question, uh, there's no virtue in not being a thinking person. And Paul calls us to think through what he's read and calls us to not be immature in our thinking, but people can be very good thinkers without having high, attained high levels of education. So I think that we live in kind of this strange dichotomy of, in the social media world, perhaps in the seminary world, I'm not as qualified to speak into your context, certainly in the publishing world, we do value the people who know the most, who can say the most, who can say things in the most compelling fashion. And yet when you switch over to kind of our average everyday church world, uh I don't think it quite feels the same way. Like on a Sunday morning, I'm not necessarily on the lookout for the person with the highest educational attainment or the the most vocabulary words in the church. I think instinctually we're, we tend to be drawn towards the, the sort of person that could put their arm around you and pray a really meaningful prayer who who loves you, who is a good listener, who has good social interaction, who can make uh, people feel welcomed and cared for, and a person who uh, may not know Greek or Hebrew, but they read their Bible over and over and over again. We're just drawn to people like that, emotionally healthy people, life-giving people who love prayer, love the Word, and love people. And you're right, when we get into the, kind of the commodifying of knowledge, whether that's through book publishing or um, social media or YouTube or those sort of things, it, it can unintentionally, I, I, think, I don't think people are setting out to do this, but unintentionally create really this bifurcation that, that gets the whole Christian life out of whack, and then we end up reaping the consequences for it later.
0: Well said. Well, Justin, look, we have just a few more moments here. Um, Perhaps just a final word of exhortation of pastors listening um, who are processing this conversation, processing your comments. Uh, What would you say to them, perhaps one last word of encouragement as to why they should guard their hearts?
1: You know, Dr. Allen, as I think about all of these uh, very sad cases that we see come across um, our our social media feeds and in our inboxes, um, we we see people who have been found out in their sin and then have to publicly have some sort of reckoning reckoning or confession. And one of the things that I have noticed, I've noticed two things that seem to be a constant with every single one of these. Brothers or sisters who find themselves in that terrible situation, it seems to me like even in their repentance, they are, they downplay the importance of the sin and they talk about the consequences only on a horizontal level. And I have to think that uh, at the root of that is not keeping ourselves um, fresh before the Lord. So we could talk about all sorts of accountability systems and how to install covenant eyes on your computer and get the right filter and, um, how to have weekly meetings where you check in with this brother or that brother. Um, and I think all of those things can be very important tools, but at the end of the day, uh, the root of it all is how we relate to the Lord, whether we are confessing our sins specifically um, and not just vaguely to him. Uh, we're asking him to fill us with the Holy spirit asking Him to keep us humble, seeking to look at the cross, seeking to see the glory of God. I can't think of anybody who is doing that actively and seeking to worship from the heart with passion on their own, not just when others are looking, not when, just when we're up standing behind the pulpit, um, to keep our hearts aflame for God. that That's what, I mean, if, if anybody out there wants to pray for me, that's, Oh, I'd ask that you'd start to pray for me, how we can pray for each other. Because when we look at the consequences of sin, that momentary pleasure that we feel, because it is pleasureful <laughs> to, to sin. Nobody sins because it's uh, dutiful or because it feels bad. We sin because it feels good, but it's momentary. It's fleeting, and then the consequences are, are terrible and destructive. So I would just encourage any brother out there listening, I'm speaking first to myself, Let us seek to love the Lord with all of our heart, to be honest before Him, to spend time with Him each day in the Word, talking to Him, hearing from Him by the Spirit through the Word. And I think if that's the case, and if we have people that we know in our lives and that we are known by them, I think the Lord will take care of the rest.
0: Justin, very well said, and that's a perfect point to end on. And man, the reminder that this is a word not just for the brother out there who's mired in sin. It, this is a word for the two of us. This is a word for all of us. And uh, man, may God help us to guard our hearts. Justin, thank you for being on uh, Preaching and Preachers today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, please visit my website, Allen dot com.